Hello, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Newbridge and so glad to have you joining us online. You're welcome here. Uh, I hope that this sermon is helpful and is encouraging to you no matter what's going on in life or no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. Uh, for now, enjoy this sermon. Again, hope that it's helpful and I hope to have the opportunity to meet you in person. But you're having a good weekend. I'm glad that you're here with us as we open God's Word uh, this morning. Um, I want to start by just having you imagine a couple of scenarios with me, all right? So I want you to um, imagine that moment that maybe some of you have had before where you get the notification on your phone, it goes off, and you look and it reminds you that like in two days you have a dentist appointment, uh, a dental cleaning, right? And you go, oh, shoot, I better start flossing. And so you get going because you know you're going to be asked if you floss. So you get going, you start flossing, and your gums reward you for that by swelling up and bleeding in your mouth. And, you know, so there's that moment when you're in the dental hygienist chair and doing their thing, cleaning you up and all of that. And they, of course, then they ask the question, so did you, have you been flossing? And you're like, well, yeah. Because you're thinking, well, I mean, technically, I have been flossing for two days. But they know. All they can do is look and see how swollen your gums are and how difficult it is to get the floss between each tooth. And, and they know. And in that moment, you're exposed. You haven't been flossing. Let's say you're a high school student. And you're going through the semester. And conveniently, some of your friends provide the homework, the answer to the homework for you, and so you're turning the homework in on time, and you're getting the good grades for it, and so your, you know, your report card or whatever, your, your progress reports are reflecting that you're nailing it, and then it comes test time, and you're not able to sit by that friend, maybe, or whatever, and now it's time for you to actually demonstrate that you know the information. And in that moment, you realize you're exposed. Oh, shoot. I don't actually know how to solve these math equations. And now the gap between what I was turning in and the homework and my need to perform it is exposed. Uh, maybe you sit down with your boss for some kind of a performance review. And you're telling him, oh, man, I, I am busy. I'm making calls. I'm... Uh, I've got appointments, I'm staying on top of stuff, and you're just going on and on about how busy you are and how hard you're working. And then the boss pulls up, well, let's just look at your calendar, and, and let's look at some of these phone logs, and let's, let's look at some of the reviews from our clients and customers and some of your team, you know, your coworkers who are saying that, man, stuff is coming in late, it's coming in complete, it's... Um, you know, your calendar's got all these wide open times, we see that your candy crush you know, scores are increasing about from the hours between 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. And you realize like, oh, maybe I haven't quite been working as hard as I'd like to portray myself as doing. Or you get audited, you know, and so they want to see all the numbers and realize that those don't quite reflect what you've been saying. We, we could go on and on, right? We know all kinds of examples. Here, here's another good one. Uh, not that it's ever happened to me, uh, mostly because I get to church before all of you. But, you know, say you're driving erratically around town, right? And somebody is in front of you driving a little slower than you'd like, and you're kind of riding up on them, letting them know, and honking, flashing the lights, whatever. Let's get going. 
and then you pull into the same parking lot together, and you're like, oh, hi, and exposed. We, we've got all kinds of examples, right, that we can think of, some that are more embarrassing and, and maybe a little bit more convicting than others. Um, but these are those moments where whatever's happened, uh, we're exposed in that moment. Maybe it's not who you would like to be. Maybe it's not even who you would say you normally are. But in that moment, nonetheless, you're exposed. And, and in the passage that we come to today, the scene that we come to today, Jesus exposes the hearts of those who are in positions of religious power and authority. And in that, actually, Jesus' heart is also uh, exposed in it. But it's not just an invitation for us to look at what Jesus exposes about them or what we see about Jesus. This will also be an invitation for our hearts to be exposed because Scripture says that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks, and to guard our hearts above all else because it's the wellspring of life, everything flows from it. So this is an invitation for us to, expose, to examine our own hearts, which can be a bit uncomfortable, um, except for the fact that Jesus already knows, and Jesus already loves us. He's already committed to meeting us where we are, and by his grace, walking with us through his redemption and his plan to restore us and make us into the people that he created us uh, to be in the first place. And so it's safe for him to expose what's in our hearts. Last week, we were in the scene where Jesus turned water into wine at this wedding feast, and we saw the heart of Jesus on display, his heart of love and commitment to his people and an invitation that all would come and be a part of this relationship with him, this life of celebration with him. And the scene that immediately follows is a scene where we see a different side of Jesus, his heart and his love is exposed, it's exposed as one that's being zealous, passionate for genuine, authentic worship with him. One that cuts through all the nonsense and a lot of the corruption and injustice that so often clouds around a relationship with Jesus. These two scenes and these two stories shouldn't be read separate from each other. They shouldn't be read like we're seeing two different Jesuses, one a happy celebratory one and one this angry one. We're seeing the heart of Jesus in both, and both are actually the same heart just in different scenarios of life. So right after the wedding, Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his disciples go down to Capernaum, and they're there for a few days. And then in the next sentence, John sets up the scene for us of what we're going to be witnessing here. John says, the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And then he tells us that they were in the temple, that this whatever is about to happen is in the temple. So John tells us that our scene is happening in a very important, during a very important time of year, in a very important place or places. It's happening during the, the Passover or preparations for the Passover, and it's happening in Jerusalem and in the temple specifically in Jerusalem. Now, the Passover was the most important event that happened in the history of the people of Israel. There was no more important event that they remembered and reflected on, and every year, 
Um, in response to God's instruction, the people would gather to celebrate and remember and reflect upon when God miraculously and powerfully intervened, graciously, generously intervened into their lives during a time when they had been oppressed in slavery for over 400 years in Egypt. And, and God comes in and he frees them powerfully, and right before he frees them, he had told them that each family was to take a lamb, a spotless, perfect lamb without blemish, to sacrifice it, take its blood, and put it above the doorpost. And when God's spirit of judgment would come through Egypt, it would pass over any door that had the blood over its door, and it would carry on, and that family, those within there, would be saved. They would be protected and redeemed. And so these people, then God told them, every year I want you to celebrate this. I want you to remember this. I want you to pass this on to your children. Talk about it. Don't ever forget what I've done. This, they, they built their, their calendar around the Passover. This was significant. This was not just some kind of general uh, excuse to close the office for a few days or to eat some of the favorite family recipes. You know, this was a time to commemorate, to think about, to reflect on. It was deeply symbolic a time where every aspect of the meal and everything they did was to remind them of who God is, what God had done, what it means to be God's people and belong to God, to follow his ways, to live those out in such a way that would point everybody else who's watching them to God and who he is. Everything about this holiday was to remember and reflect on what God had done. And so John tells us that's the background for what's going on. But not only that, he tells us that this is happening in Jerusalem, and not only in Jerusalem, but in the temple. Again, Jerusalem, this is, this is the, the city, the, the home city of the people of Israel. This is their national pride. But not only that, that is happening in the temple. Now, the temple... It, there's not a more important place to the people of Israel than the temple. It represents identity, their ability to connect with and worship God, their national pride. After God had freed them from Egypt, he told them to build this kind of portable temple called a tabernacle. And then eventually when they were in their own land to build the, the temple, and he was very specific about how it was to be built, and the architecture, and, and the materials to be used in it, the furniture, again, everything symbolic of who God was, what he had done, what it meant to gather with him, to worship with him. There were very specific, clear, and strict regulations on how you were to gather and worship, of what sacrifices could be brought, who could perform the sacrifices, where they could perform them. It was very, very, very serious. And when the temple was destroyed, the people, their hearts were broken. When they were, when they were led um, into exile away from their homeland of the temple, there was a brokenness there, not only just because of being out of their land, but their inability to worship with God, to be with God. Um, and, and so they wanted to get back and to rebuild the temple. It represented so much to them. And King Herod knew that if he wanted to garner some favor with the people, then he could work, he could work on building the temple as well. He knew this was, this was meaningful to the people. And so John tells us that what's happening today is happening in, during the most significant time of year, in the most significant place 
to the people of Israel. This is a really, really important scene here. And then it says that in the temple, he, Jesus, found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. I find this kind of interesting. You think about it. Jesus walks up to the temple, and you realize that most people at this time didn't know who he was, or they didn't know that he was God in human flesh. They didn't believe that yet, even if they had heard that was maybe some claim or some rumors of that. They, they didn't know, and yet here Jesus walks up to this temple that was built for the worship of God, him, and he gets to observe what people are doing. It would be kind of like a CEO of a big company, right, coming to a local branch and walking in, and the employees having no idea who this person is, and the CEO being able to just observe what's happening there. And that's what Jesus is doing. So Jesus walks up to the temple, and, and he's furious. We'll see. He's furious with what he sees. People are selling animals and, uh, to be sacrificed. They're exchanging money there. And, and, and here's a little bit of what's going on. People would travel from all over to come in uh, to the temple for, for worship, but certainly during Passover time. And so when those people would travel, some people would travel such far distances that bringing an animal wasn't maybe as convenient. So they would wait till they get there to purchase an animal. Um, maybe some didn't plan accordingly, and so they're there, and they still they need to purchase a, an animal um, there. And, and not only that, but the animals, if they did bring an animal, it had to be approved to be sacrificed. It had to be proven because God had clear instructions bring the the first and the very best of what you have without blemish, without defect. So they would come and there'd be people there who would examine it. And they might say, sorry, doesn't make the cut. Not good enough. Let me, let me take that from you. And I'll buy it from you on the cheap. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of money for that, but, but here I've got a really nice one for you to buy. This one meets the standards. Okay, how much does it cost? Well, highly inflated price. Well, Man, how badly do you want to worship God? How badly do you want to please God? Okay, fine, fine. Scrap together the money, and, and here you go. Um, there were others who, again, traveled and didn't have one, so they would get there, and okay, I need to purchase um, for, the, for the sacrifice. And again, they would find a highly inflated price. These people who were selling animals there had figured out this was a really good business opportunity. Uh, and they were smart business people, and they're making all kinds of money off of those coming to worship God. Imagine you walking in this morning and you realize, oh, I don't, I don't have a Bible or I forgot my Bible. Forget the fact that you can look it up on your phone. Okay, go back some years. And imagine that our greeters are like, no problem. We've got Bibles right here for you. Oh, phew. Um, yeah, just 200 bucks. You're like, really? Amazon says here for, you know, 25 and I can have it here tomorrow. Well, do you want it now? And this one's better. Okay, 25 bucks. Then it comes time for communion. Like, all right, please come gather your communion elements. Come on up front. Now we have individual plans. We have family plans. And if you would like, like the really good, you know, crackers and, and the, the wine, you know, here, you can purchase that here for this price. And you're like, oh, man, I, I really want to participate in communion. But, geez, that kind of seems like a ripoff. Like, well, how badly do you want to participate in communion? That's a little bit of what's going on here. But on top of that, then you had money exchangers there. So the money exchangers uh, were there because the currency of the day had the, the, the face of Caesar on it, right? That's the currency of the Roman Empire. 
Well, Caesar claimed to be God, and you can't use the currency with Caesar's face on it in the temple. That's to be dedicated to God. And so there was this sense of like, no, you, we have our own currency, and so there's an exchange rate. Well, any of you have traveled, you understand the frustration and the complexity with exchange rates. Like, you go there, and especially, say, if it's at the airport, you know you're probably not going to get as good of exchange rate as if maybe you find some other local bank that maybe you can get a better deal. But you understand that sometimes it's not a one-to-one um, transaction here. Maybe you've experienced that at Chuck E. Cheese or somewhere else like that. You go and you need, you need certain coinage to, to be able to participate with what's there. So these people are coming in, and they're like, okay, I would like to, to pay the temple tax because everybody who's 19 years or older had to pay a temple tax. This was part of how you kept up the temple. It was how you paid the priests and stuff. And so they needed to exchange their money. Well, again, people realized great business opportunity. Where we can exchange the money, again, but not at a rate that's going to be favorable for you. It's going to be favorable for us. On top of all of that, they set this up in the court of the Gentiles. This was a part where that was designated in the temple area where people with a non-Jewish background could come to worship God or to seek God, to, to, to examine, what was, to explore what was going on. So they set this up there, making it difficult for anybody who's not Jewish to even come in and function and, and do their part in pursuing God. So this is all what's going on. And, and Jesus walks up. This is what he sees. And he is angry, but it tells us that Jesus began to make a, with cord a, a whip. That tells us that Jesus didn't walk in and just fly off the handle. This wasn't some emotional outburst. This wasn't just Jesus going in and before he could count to ten, cleaning shop. Jesus took some time and began to make a whip. And I don't know how long it takes to make a whip, um, but it, he took some time. And he's watching and he's observing. And what he sees, he knows this is not right. This is not pleasing to God. This is not what God had in mind when he gave instructions for worship at the temple. This is not what it means to worship him. And he's watching this. His heart is breaking. He's angry because he's passionate about worship. Jesus sees their hearts exposed. He sees the religious leaders, that their hearts are exposed. And this is those in power taking advantage of the weak, the powerless. This is, this is a religiosity superseding genuine worship of God. This is people coming maybe unprepared for worship of God and then trying to figure out how they can you know, maybe last minute make things happen so they can go through the right uh, rituals. This is selfish, personal gain rather than selfless servanthood. These people who are, who are selling and taking care of things. This is not them thinking about, how can I help facilitate your worship of God? This is, how can I benefit from you in this situation that really gives me an opportunity to make some money here? This is people who are getting in the way of others who are seeking to come and to worship God. They're getting in the way of them being able to meet with and have a genuine encounter with God. This is also people growing so accustomed to this injustice and this corruption that they became numb to it, that they either just didn't notice it anymore 
or it's people feeling so helpless and powerless that they grew quiet and passive, what they saw. And they just said, there's no way we can stand up against all these people with power. I mean, we know what will happen if we do. We know what people will say. We know how people will treat us. So we'll just be quiet and we'll just go through it. And this is what Jesus sees. He walks up to a time to celebrate God's gracious, redemptive work. During the most significant time of year, in the most significant place, and this is what Jesus finds. And so it narrative goes on to tell us that after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with sheep and oxen. He poured out the money changers, coins, and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written in Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. Just as the hearts of the people were exposed, so is Jesus' heart exposed here. Jesus, yes, angry, but, but zealous maybe a better word. It's the root for Jesus' actions here. He's zealous for genuine worship, not just going through the religious rituals and the motions. He's, he's zealous for worship, that people would meet with God, that they would have an encounter with God, that they would give him the respect and the honor that's due, and that they would experience what it means to be with God. He's passionate about that. He sees people going through the motions, and he knows that is not what God has invited us into. Jesus is passionate about pursuing people so that people would be reconciled in relationship to God. This is his heart. This is what we saw in the scene before. This is why he turns water into wine to say, hey, I'm the groom that's coming back for my bride, and there's a wedding feast to come, and I want you all at it. And one day, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there. And, and you, yes, come. This is his heart, that all would be reconciled to him. And so, Jesus, we see that he's passionate about that, and we also see that he's passionate about people who get in the way of people encountering God the way that people's religious expression and religious pursuits actually turn people away from God rather than draw them into relationship with God. When the Bible speaks of, of God, it, just, it uses descriptions like a lion and a lamb. That's what we see here. It uses descriptions um, like a shepherd who carries around a rod to protect and a staff to guide. And so in John chapter 2 earlier, we see Jesus inviting people in. And here we see Jesus using the rod to cleanse and to protect the worship of God and the mission of God. So, the Jews, so, so Jesus then turns everything upside down drives all of the people out. People are running out of their way. The animals are running around, making all their noises, I'm sure. Coins are spilled everywhere. There's chaos. Sorry, I'm making this scratchy. Is that my back here? I think that is. Sorry. Um, and the coins are just going everywhere. It's quite a scene. When I try to visualize it, I, I imagine it almost like um, one of those Western movies where there's, you know, a big scuffle in the saloon, 
and everything's tipped over and broken. And, and then it's like there's this moment where, like, okay, you hear, like, the last of the noise, and then everything settles for a minute. And everybody's like, okay, are we done? What's going on? What just happened? And then the Jewish people speak up, and they go, what sign do you have for doing these things? And Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, and I'll rebuild it. I go, rebuild it in three days? It took 46 years to build this so far, and actually, it's not even done. It's not going to be until like 80, 64 or so before it's actually even going to be finished, like another 20 years. So, like, how are you going to do that? And Jesus steps into this moment. And he, and he basically, his point is, I've come to fulfill all of what this all represents. The temple, the law, every animal sacrifice, every symbolic act, piece of furniture, everything that you do, everything the priest does, I've come to fulfill it all. And they're like, but 46 years it took, how are you going to do this in three days? And then Jesus, the, the temple that he's referring to is the temple of his body. Jesus is saying, I'm here, and you can tear down this temple because this is how you meet with God, is through me. Not through a place, but through a person. Not through a religion, but through a relationship. It's me. I'm here. Remember in John 1.14 when John wrote that Jesus came and he dwelt among humanity. And we looked at that and we said that word dwelt is the word for tabernacle. That was the temporary temple when the people were nomadic. And, and, and so Jesus said there, like he come to dwell with people, to replace God's temple. That John the Baptist, twice when he saw Jesus, said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying, look, I'm the sacrifice. I'm the priest. I'm the temple. I'm it all. This I'm the point, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to come lay down my life, tear it down, for th in three days I will raise from the dead. He's saying like something, so like, the new, like the new wine versus the old wine, the new temple versus the old, he says something better is here, and it's in me, and it's pure, and this is how you meet with God. This is what worship means, is to be in relationship with me, to receive who I am and what I've come to do on your behalf. This is what Jesus is all about. The book of Hebrews talks so much about this. If this is something you want to read a little bit more about, I recommend reading the book of Hebrews. There's so much connection between who Jesus is and what he's done and between the law and what happens in the temple. And Jesus is saying that the time has come for God to be with you and to make a way for you to be with God. And Jesus' disciples then remembered after he was killed and after he rose, they remembered this scene, it says. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the statement that Jesus had made. And while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows our hearts. Before they're even exposed, before anybody else, they're fully exposed to Jesus. He knows. He sees. And as scary and vulnerable as that can be, 
It's also safe because of Jesus' grace and his invitation to come. And I will take you as you are, but I won't leave you as you are. My grace will change you. I see you. It's like the verse that we've, been, that we've memorized, created me a clean heart, Lord. Renew a loyal spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Lord, this is, this is what Jesus is inviting us into a psalm where David writes elsewhere, search me, God, and know my ways. May there be no offensive way in me. Jesus already says he knows here. And as I've thought on this passage this past week, as I've prayed on this, I've just really, what's, what's come is a lot of challenging questions that God has brought forward that I just want to present to you to reflect on. And that's how I'm going to have us end our time. I've got a number of questions. You'll see them there in the program for us to reflect on. As I do, I want to remind you this, that what, what looked like Jesus' anger and his cleansing was his pursuit of the glory of God, the holiness of God, and for us to experience genuine worship with God as we follow his ways above our own ways, above any sort of religious expression that isn't representative of him. And so while we see that part of Jesus, go, I don't know if I like that part as much as the other. Uh, it's his cleansing invitation. So I'm going to ask you, some questions that I've been asking myself that are challenging and they're hard. Um, but may you hear Jesus' invitation to cleanse and to draw you closer into him, okay? So here's a couple of questions that I'm going to ask. Uh, this first one is kind of an umbrella that a lot of others um, fall underneath. Imagine Jesus not walking up to the temple, but just walks up to your daily life. And he looks. What would he see? What would he see that is not aligned with the heart and the mission of God? So we saw him walk up to the temple, and he goes, whoa, this isn't right. What would he see if he just walked up to our daily lives, and he just observed? So, uh, along with that, here's another one. How can I approach corporate worship uh, more intentionally? Worship, I know, it's daily life. It's not only about this. And if you know me well, you will know how much I believe in the importance of what happens Monday through Saturday, that following Jesus is not just about Sunday, and it's not just about coming in and pulling off a great Sunday service and then going on our way. You know that. Having said that, our corporate gathering is extremely important and unique. It's different than any, any other part of our week. It's different than anything else that we can do. There's ways that when we hear each other's voices, when we see each other, when we have opportunity to hear the word of God together, there's unique things that happens when we corporately come together. And I know that with those opportunities, there's also challenges. And I just want to ask you, what is your mindset about our gatherings? Current research would show that people who consider themselves regular attenders of a church would come one to two times a month. Just what current research would share. Not only that, we often joke about being late bridge. And, <laughs> and I get it. I get it's hard sometimes to get out the door. It's hard to get our families together and get out the door. It's, it's easy to get caught up in conversation out in the lobby, and I love that. Of course, we want your coffee when coming in. But I can't tell you how many times it's come time to start the time of worship 
uh, our first song, and, and there'll be just a handful, maybe a handful of people in here. Very different than by the time I get up here. And it's, you know, there's more people, and we're, we're ready to go. And, and I think, what does that communicate? Not to the band, not to me, but what does that communicate to God about how we're approaching our time of worship of God? Like, I'll get to it when I get to it. Or there's other things, and I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that that's not your thinking, but I just, wanted, I just want to challenge you as I've challenged myself. What does it mean to be a people who would say, I, I take this time seriously, and I'm going to be ready, like physically, mentally, spiritually, I want to be ready. I had a friend, the Nali Wakos recommend a, a resource that they've been using that I just can point you to that you might find helpful. This is a book by Paul David Tripp, Sundays Matter, and 52 devotionals to, to read that they read before um, coming to worship each Sunday. This is a way to try to help get ready for it. But what can we do to be a people who approach our corporate gatherings in a way that reflects, Jesus, we take this time with you seriously? Such a question for you. Here's another one. How am I going through the religious motions but missing the deeper relational connection with Jesus? I'm checking the boxes, paying the temple tax, bringing the sacrifice, but somehow in that, I've just missed what the connection is really supposed to be all about. And Jesus isn't just looking for people to check the boxes. He's saying, there's a greater purpose to it all that I'm inviting you into. How are we maybe going through the motions? There's another one. What sin in your life has become normalized to you? So I think about this scene. And what was happening there wasn't right. But somehow, somewhere along the way, it became normalized to those who were doing it, to those who were selling and exchanging money and those who were seeing it. Somehow it became normalized enough that it just kept going on. And, and in all of our own lives, there's probably areas of sin where we've just said, that's just the way it is. It's just who I am. It's just how, whatever, that if Jesus were to walk up in our life, I think he would say, but that's not okay. It's, it's not right. And I want to deal with that. So what might he be saying? Like, yeah, I, I get it. I understand that's sin, but, but let me cleanse that from your life. Let me take that away. Here's another one. What is happening around me and in our world that breaks the heart of Jesus? Where is there passivity in me toward injustice and corruption? This is a tough one. Um, because we live in a world that's very um, broken and unjust and corrupt, and there's all kinds of things that break the heart of God that, that we witness, that we see both close to us and across the world. And we see this in this scene here, right? People are walking up, and what they're seeing is not right. And I've got to believe that there were people who saw that and who felt like something needs to be done about this. Like, but if I speak up, oh my goodness, you know. You know what's going to happen if I say something, if I do something. So I just, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm just going to be passive. It's such a challenge. I get it. It's so complicated uh, when we apply that even to our own day and our own time. But I think when you look around your life and just start with kind of concentric circles maybe, like, like right immediately around you and then in our city and our community and our country and in our world, what do you see that you look and you go, man, I know that breaks the heart of God and, and we should do something about that, but I, man, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hard to do that. 
Pray about that. Ask the Lord. Ask him to give you courage and wisdom and to give you uh, the ability to, to represent his heart in how you pursue that. Jesus says in, in, other, um, in other gospel writers, when they, when they write about this same event, they, they say um, that he's zealous because this is God, his house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. Are we praying for what's happening around the world that breaks the heart of God? Are we listening more to the politicians, more to our political parties, more to what people are posting than we are saying, God, what's your heart about this? And if your heart is that all nations and all peoples would receive your love and your grace, then why do I find myself committed to only certain nations and certain peoples? but not all of them. Can I love the people of Israel and have compassion for the, for the Palestinians in Gaza as well? Can I desire that they would experience God's love and that those innocent people also would be spared? Or am I going to get nailed for saying that? Can we be a people who say, yes, we want to welcome refugees, though we understand there's political stuff around this and there's, it's, it's hotly debated, but God, your heart, you speak to this in your word, and we know we're going to hear plenty about this in the upcoming presidential you know, battles and all of that, and so, Lord, am I going to listen more to what these people are saying, or am I going to search your word and allow your spirit to convict me and then lead me? And what am I going to do here, Lord, and will you be the voice that I listen to? Will you be the one that leads me? And not all of these others. And God, would you show me how to do that in a way that reflects your heart? Because here's the last question that I would ask. Are there ways that my expression of faith is an obstacle to others who are seeking to find Jesus? So are there, what I'm not saying is you need to change your conviction so people will want to follow Jesus. Or you need to somehow make Jesus more palatable for people. But what I am saying is that there are ways in which we can approach pursuing Jesus that is more of a stench of self-righteous religiosity than it is in genuine love of Jesus. And then it is a sweet aroma of Christ, as Paul writes. Are there ways that we talk about things, that we express our beliefs, that we go about our pursuit of Jesus. That makes it difficult for people. They go, if that's what Jesus, I don't want anything to do with that. Again, I think of this scene, I think the court of the Gentiles, I think of people who might have been coming and saying, I want to come to sacrifice, but I don't want to go. I'm just going to get ripped off. I'm just going to get taken advantage of. I can't stand that I have to walk by these people who are so opposite of Jesus in the way they carry themselves. I don't, I don't even want to have to go near the temple because I can't take that. I just think, man, are we like that in any way? Individually, as a church, and in any way, like, is that in us? God, would you show me? Are there ways that my pursuit of you actually turns people away from you? Help me to both be loving and speak the truth and, and, and to know how to do this in a way that's, that's faithful to you, 
and a winsome witness of who you are? There's some hard, challenging questions, but these are ones that come to mind. Jesus exposes um, his heart uh, for uh, genuine worship and to be united with God in this passage. He exposes our hearts as desperately in need of him. Even religious people, you notice that this was about religious people with the power. So even those who are very familiar with being around God, man, we desperately need him. So each week when we come to communion, that's what we're doing. We're saying, Jesus, we need you, the one who came and fulfilled it all, the one who gave his very body and blood, and who was raised again victorious over all of this to speak into my life, to rescue me, to save me, to pour your grace in me. I let go of everything, my corruption, my injustice, my passivity, my religiosity, my self-righteousness, my self-reliance. I let go of it all to take hold of you, Jesus, because I believe that you're the one who invites and cleanses. And so during this time, I'm going to invite the band to come up, and what I'm going to ask of you I've asked the band to just give us a minute or two to spend some time in reflection. We've been saying this verse, create in me a clean heart, Lord, and I want to give us an opportunity to ask God to do that in light of whatever His Spirit has revealed in this time. Uh, what I want to encourage you to do is maybe look over those set of questions, and if there's one or two that stands out more um, to you, to, um, to pray through that, to take some time praying through that. Uh, and then to come and get uh, communion um, elements, and we'll take them together. I'm going to just remind us of this, this prayer, this verse, and then again, I want to give you um, a couple of minutes to reflect on it. So God, would, we pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew a loyal spirit within uh, me within us. Cast us not away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to us the joy of the salvation that we find in you and you alone. Of what it's all about. And would you make us willing to obey your ways and not whatever we've turned them into. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that now in this uh, time of reflection that you would speak to our hearts and show us what that looks like where we're at now.